Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy, mountain bikers. Thanks for being here, and welcome to episode 155 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here as always to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get on the trails, keep you stoked and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks so much for being here and thanks for tuning in to the show this week. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast and want to show your support, the best way to do that is by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts from. Your ratings and reviews help the podcast get seen easier and hopefully it will get more people off the sofas and on to the saddle. So I would appreciate you just taking a couple of minutes and doing that on whatever platforms you listen to your podcasts on. And for the people that have been doing that over the last number of weeks, thanks so much for doing that. It makes a big difference and I really appreciate your support and input to the show. Now, have you ever been to Tasmania? Have you ever had a look at their trail centres online? Have you ever checked out any MTB YouTube footage of Tasmania? If you have, then you know where this is going. But if you haven't been prepared to drool over your phone or over your steering wheel or wherever you may be listening to this podcast because Tasmania has it all. From the trails to the scenery to the awesome people, it is just a mega for mountain biking. And the scene is growing. It's growing fast. It's getting a lot of input from government there. They're seeing it as a tourist attraction, all that good stuff. So it was awesome to get the managing director and owner of Dirt Art and also Medina Mountain Bike Park, Simon French, on the show. We chat to Simon about building trails, about surviving the COVID thing, buying and developing a bike park in Medina and making mistakes along the way, of course, but making lots of good decisions also. We chat to him about dealing with the government and how that kind of makes things a little bit more difficult and getting planning permission for trails, etc, etc. And we chat to him about how he designs trails, how he goes about building them, how he looks at the environment when he's doing that, all that good stuff. So we chat to him about his, his trail building company, Dirt Art. We also chat to him about his bike park, Medina, which looks insane, guys. I mean, it looks brilliant. Just go to their YouTube channel and check it out. The stuff looks unreal. So we chat to Simon about all this and how he's having a blast while doing it. So let's get Simon on the show. It's a real good chat. He's a real, real good lad. And let's welcome Simon to the MTB Tribe podcast. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the MTB Tribe podcast. How's things with you? Late afternoon with you there in Tasmania. Yeah, no, really well. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. You're more than welcome, sir. You're more than welcome. Uh, we were just chatting briefly there before we hit the, the big red record button, what the scene's like in Tasmania. And it's it's getting really good. Eh? You have some awesome, awesome trails and stuff down there. Yeah, look, we, we've got several really good trail centers now or trail networks around the state, kind of in every corner of the state and definitely recognized by most in Australia as the, the leading mountain bike state. I think it's pretty universally accepted now. So look, as a mountain bike rider, it's a pretty good place to live. Yeah, I, I can uh, it looks amazing for sure. Your website looks cool too um, for the Medina Bike Park and stuff. We'll get into that for sure. Um, why do you think Tasmania's became like that? 
Do, I take it you get a lot of people coming over from Australia and stuff visiting the, the trails there. Yeah, we do, and certainly a lot more from overseas now. Um, quite a growing market from New Zealand, quite a few from Asia. Look, Tasmania is just a really nice little place. It's really easy to get around, um, three or four hours from, from one end of the island to the other. So it's pretty easy to kind of bounce around between different destinations. We've got really strong wilderness areas, really great natural environment, lots of elevation opportunity. So big mountains always make for good mountain biking. And just a, a really nice little scene. I mean, there's, there's a good little surfing scene. There's a good food and dine, uh, dining and and um, arts and cultural scene. So it, it's just a really cool little place. Yeah, cool. Have you lived there all your life, Simon? I, I've lived here forever. I, I travel a lot for work. Obviously not so much now with COVID. But, yeah, usually I'm, I'm in and out of the state every week. But, yeah, I, I've grown up here. Yeah, wow. And how have you seen it change over the years? Uh, look, from a, from a mountain biking perspective, it's definitely changed. I mean, I've, I've been involved in the sport for, for over 25 years. And we, we started out, I guess, like most places, with a, a bit of informal trail, riding, walking trail, and then slowly got our first official trails in about 2005. And it's just grown steadily from there. A, a lot of planning work went into it, a lot of strategic planning over many years to secure government funding and, and get some of these bigger projects up and moving. But it's it's really grown, grown legs now. It's got a lot of momentum and there's a lot of interest from the government down here now in continuing to invest in mountain biking. Yeah, well, that that's pretty cool. Huh? Like... It really takes that because I was speaking to a gentleman from Germany the other day and he's involved in the, the industry and they're having a really hard time getting the government on board, you know, seeing the possibilities of tourism, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of the time you're not actually allowed to ride bikes there and stuff. So they normally scoot across the border um, and go ride elsewhere. But you're seeing the government come on board there and invest and see the tourism you know, side of it. Is that a big part and it, why it's become so popular? Yeah, look, uh, eventually, I mean, like a lot of places, we, we do a lot of planning work in other states. And I think it'd probably be fair to say that the government here is, is very proactive now. It probably hasn't always been that way. They've always been interested, but certainly not as engaged as they are at the moment. Look, I think that's one of the bigger challenges for some of the other states. Uh, I know, for example, there's, there's quite a few projects happening on mainland Australia that are just tied up. They're, they're fully funded, but they just can't get the development approvals to actually get the project started. Whereas I think down here in Tasmania, we really value our natural areas, but we're probably a little better at letting people get in there and, and showcasing those areas with walking trails, mountain bike trails and, and other tourism development. So we're certainly in a better place than some of the other states in that sense, which I think has really helped drive the industry down here so like you say with that example there's some places where you're just not allowed into those areas at all on a bike and down here there's certainly a few places you can't go on a bike and probably for good reason but we are a lot more flexible in terms of where we allow mountain bike riding yeah that's really cool and you know the majority of your trails there now because you're the managing director of dirt art right yeah that's right all right so we'll get into that as well because Initially, I contacted you about Medina Bike Park. So what's your what's your connection there? 
So we, I own and operate Made in a Bike Park as well. So we started out with a trail company and then basically developed a bunch of trail, not just for public, but also for some other private bike parks. And then basically found an opportunity down here in Tasmania to develop our own private bike park and, and built it up from there. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. It's interesting because I was wanting to ask you actually how the bike parks are owned there because here in, in Ireland and Northern Ireland and stuff, it's your general, you know, it's your, your kind of local council that build the parks, that build the trail parks. So obviously there's all the natural stuff that the local guys build and, and things themselves, but the trail parks are all kind of funded by your local council. So they're not really privately owned when you go further south, you, you certainly get privately owned parks that have been built on farmland or, or you know, the, the farmers wanting to diversify or whatever, that kind of thing. How does it sit there in Tasmania? We use it. Are the majority of the parks kind of, you know, government, state, council owned or are they privately owned? Yeah, they're, they're all they're all government owned apart from ours. And in Australia, that's that's quite common. So there's, there's a couple of ski resorts in Australia that do um, commercial mountain bike riding, and we've certainly worked with probably most of those ski resorts over the years, helping them develop their mountain bike product. But down here in Tasmania, it is just us as a private bike park, and then we've, we've helped a number of those local councils and government bodies develop mountain bike, mountain bike trail networks for the public. And look for us, probably... One of the key things was we we wanted to have an uplift service. We wanted to to develop a style of trail that was probably a bit tough to fit into a public context in terms of it being quite challenging and more jump focused for some of the trail. So it was kind of something that we wanted to do that we didn't really think fit within that public mountain bike space. Yeah, I suppose that's difficult because when you're doing something for the public, you have to obviously build it so that suits everybody right families the whole thing um yeah that and i guess you've got a client to work for and and most of our clients are fantastic but some of them have certain way that they they perceive the the trail network should look and sometimes that's not always the way that that we think it should look so for us i guess we really just wanted to take on a project where we had that um, creative control over everything i suppose and could make all of the decisions to curate that trail network and the experience exactly the way we wanted it yeah wow so it, it lets you kind of it lets you experiment almost and stuff eh in your own part oh, totally look we, we we use this park basically as a as a sounding board as a test case for for lots of things that we want to do for other clients not just in the trail network, but also in the way we operate it and the way we set up all our systems and processes and safety and everything else. So it's been a, a really valuable thing in that regard as well. Mm-hmm. Now, how long has Dirt Art been going for then? Love the name, by the way. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, 12 years. So I, I started that a little while ago now. And look, it's just steadily grown over that period. So initially it was more of a hobby. And then now it's it's very much a full time business. Yeah, wow, I can, uh, oof, yeah, I can, I can believe it, you know, and the way the scene's going and everything else. Um, so Medina Bike Park, then you got into that, you seen the opportunity. Did you buy land there? How did that work? 
Oh, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So basically, I, without going too far off into the weeds, I, I looked at the site initially for the government back in 2008. And at that point in time, it was managed as a forestry site. So it was native forest. It hadn't been logged. But the forest state-owned forestry company were, were looking after the site as land managers. They were looking to put mountain biking in as an activity. So we were basically working with them to try and develop that opportunity as a public trail network. Um, basically, that Forestry Corporation ended up handing that land over to Parks and Wildlife for more of a conservation focus. And then a few years after that, probably about 2012, the state government put out an expressions of interest process for commercial developers wanting to lease government land in a long-term lease arrangement to develop tourism infrastructure. So we basically went through that process over about three years to negotiate with them to take over a lease similar to what a lot of ski resorts are, where they're up in a natural area. Most of them don't own that land. They have a long-term lease similar to what we do here. And then on top of that, we actually were leasing a whole bunch of land at the back of town, which was owned by another private forestry company which we've now just recently, in the last few days, really purchased that land from them. So we own the land that takes in about 25 30% of our trail network at the bottom part of the hill. And then we're in the process of buying an old primary school, which is where we have our base building in an old school. <clears throat> so we're in the throes of purchasing that as well. So we own a good portion of it, and then we have a long-term lease over the rest of it. Yeah, wow, it's it's pretty involved, and I'm glad you have experience in that. In it, you know, because <laughs> a lot of people that come into this game and open up trail parks and stuff, they have no they have no experience. I'm sure you've come across it. Like, I don't know if it's the same there with you, but here in Ireland, a lot of a lot of bike parks that are opened up are by farmers wanting to diversify and stuff and things like that. So you know, it's kind of their first experience of it. So I'm glad you have got a good background in it. When you started to buy this stuff, was it quite scary for you? You know, you're obviously going a little bit more into debt and all this kind of stuff. And was it a scary move for you? Did you have to double think it? Yeah, look, I wouldn't say it was scary. I mean, we always felt that we had a really good opportunity here. It was a lot of money to, to invest in it. With obviously, same with anything, no real guarantees that it was going to work. I mean, we, we were pretty confident in what we were putting together. We certainly made a lot of mistakes, um, particularly early on, and changed a whole bunch of things and, and settled in to a, a pretty good rhythm. But yeah, look, it, it's been a challenge, and we're, we've certainly had a, a bit of a run with that flooding in the first summer, and then we had bushfires in the second summer and nearly got burnt down, and then this summer's been coronavirus. So we set, we haven't had a clean run yet, but no, look, we we still remain really optimistic. We've got a really loyal customer base and lots and lots of interest in the park from right across the world. So we think we're we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, for sure, man. It does it does look and see. And so, when did you actually open Medina Park to the public? Twenty uh, sixth of January, twenty eighteen. So this this coming summer, we'll be moving into our fourth year. Yeah, it's cool, you know, to get, it's 
it's one of those weird things because a lot of the parks are still quite young. You know what I mean? Like you've only been open a number of years there. It's not, it's not like you've been open 10, 12 years. So everything is kind of a learning experience, especially when you're dealing with nature. Right. But you'll know that more than, more than I will. Like the whole COVID thing. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, look, it's very much a learning experience. I mean, what, what we did early on, I, I've always traveled to ride anyway, but we, we, we made a big point of traveling to a whole range of different bike parks. I mean, came over your way, went to Bike Park Wales, went to Revolution really? wow. Bike Park. They were sort of the, the two bigger ones in the UK at that point. I know there's a bunch more now and spent some time with those guys and, and I keep in touch with certainly the Bike Park Wales guys and they've been down here since. So from our perspective, getting around to all those other bike parks was was really valuable in terms of learning before we opened and trying to figure out what people were doing well, what we thought we may be able to do a little bit better. But that was certainly invaluable for us. Yeah. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It's a great idea, actually, I think, to own your own bike park and have the dirt art business. They kind of go hand in hand. They strengthen each other almost, you know what I mean? So were you thinking on it like that or were you thinking before you, you purchased the Medina thing that, this is just what you're interested in. This is what you're good at. So you'll you'll go in this direction. No, look, it, it was a plan, and there's there's obviously a lot of synergy between the two. I mean, look, the the aim at the time was basically that the bike park would generate enough money to to pay our trail building company to have teams here working full time, and if we ever had any quiet periods, which we never have anyway over the last several years, but if we ever did, then we'd be able to just come here and work. So that, that was certainly the plan, and it still is. I mean, at the moment, we're just reinvesting everything back into the, the mountain bike park itself. That's, that's certainly keeping everyone on their toes. <laughs> but, look, it, it works. It works really well. I mean, for us, it means we have a big team. So generally, at the moment, I mean, not a huge team. We've got about 10 guys on the trail crew here, um, mm-hmm. mostly building new trail at the moment while we're, we're closed over this sort of COVID winter period. And then that staff's readily available for us to kind of deploy off onto to other projects that Dirt Art might have. But then we've got a team of about 50-odd other trail crew that are working around the country. Wow. And they will all, well, not all of them, some of them will come into Medina occasionally as well to help with certain things. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And it is winter there with you guys at the minute, so not you know forgetting about the covid pandemic but you would normally be closed at this time of year anyway right no we'd be open so oh, really? the, okay we've, yeah look we've, we've opened every winter so far we, we really wanted to to be a year-round bike park and whether that's the, the right or the wrong thing for us to be doing look at the top of the hill's quite high for us it does get snow for a lot of the winter so we have a drop-off point halfway up so we've got about 820 vertical meters of, of hill so about 400 meters above our base we have a drop-off point that does get snow occasionally through winter not that commonly but we've we're now just established another uplift route so we'll have a second shuttle service running a lower drop-off point so it's about 200 met, 200 meters vertical elevation from our base <clears throat> and that'll be what we what we run exclusively next winter that part of the hill is just a, a lot better place to be in the winter. It's a lot warmer, a lot drier. So that's that's the plan for the coming winter, and it was the plan for this winter until coronavirus hit. Yeah, like, 
It's affected everything, obviously. Um, and obviously it's affected bike parks and stuff like we had just a, a competition um, at the weekend there just kind of cancelled down at the gap and things like that. So um, it's not great. But how have you been working over that period? Has it given you time to rethink your trails or to build new to build new trails? Yeah, look, it's it's been interesting, actually. We, we were sort of working on a major project anyway before coronavirus hit. And so we were when we launched the bike park, it was very much about um, very high-end trails, so it's a very technical trail, lots of big jump trails, a little bit for intermediates, not a lot for beginners, and lots for more experienced riders. And the plan was always to start with that and then build out more beginner-friendly offerings further down the line. Um, basically we were sort of at a point where we were about to kick off that beginner trail development what we'd been waiting for was to purchase all this land at the bottom of the hill so we had a lot more space in the areas that we wanted to develop beginner trail so when COVID hit we shut for we shut a little bit earlier we didn't actually have to shut but just didn't feel like the right thing to do to be cramming people in buses with all the uncertainty around the whole thing so we shut towards the end of March before any government mandates for closure. We shut for well, a few months. Um, we, we were going to shut until the end of September. We decided to open up for a few weekends over so June, July. So we just did a couple of weekend sessions for the locals before we bunkered down and, and got ready to build trail across the winter. And look, we, we I guess we sort of foresaw this was going to be a, potentially quite a long process getting through COVID and the winter was coming anyway. So we thought, look, let's just make one decisive call at the start and push our reopening back to the spring, towards the end of the spring. And look, for us, that was, I think, very much the right thing to do. We were were starting to lose quite a bit of money towards the end of, or just prior to our closure anyway, with lots of people starting to cancel their bookings. So we thought we'll just stem the flow and, and shut the doors and get ready to reopen in spring. Yeah, no, good. It was. Uh, I think it was a good way to go about it. You're hoping to reopen end of September kind of time? Yeah, so we reopened September 26th. I mean, the, the hardest thing for us is the majority of our visitor base is from mainland Australia. So we we probably do about 60% in, uh, international and mainland Australians. So they're, at the moment, our borders are still closed. And they probably make up about 80% of our revenue. They spend a little bit more than the locals when they're here. So we're we're really working at the moment to try and develop an offering that something we don't cater well for locals at the moment. It's just we probably haven't haven't filled in the few little gaps in our trail network. We're building a, a much more extensive climbing trail opportunity, which I think the locals have been keen for for quite a while. A lot more beginner-friendly trail and lots and lots of kids and family trails. So we're, we're really sort of starting right at the, the bottom end with young kids on the little run-along strider bikes and moving upwards from there. And then we've bought airbags and building skills parks and new pump tracks and all manner of things like that. So I think we'll hopefully have a really good offering. We will have a really good offering for a local audience once we reopen. And I think our borders are due to reopen at this stage on the 1st of December. So we're just getting ready for, for hopefully a bumper summer. Yeah, for sure. And 
I'm sure it's the same in Tasmania there, but the the mountain bike scene and, and the amount of people buying bikes has just been going crazy over the COVID thing. Have you it's seen that as well? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's nuts. I mean, we we have a commercial partnership with Trek. I know they're they're just can't even keep up with bike sales down here in Australia and. All of the dealers we talk to in our networks, they're all out of bikes. It's it's nuts. And all the local trail centres are just full. We're talking to a lot of councils about helping them expand their trail networks and build bigger car parks. And, yeah, it's it's been a crazy time. So we certainly think <clears throat> we'll be ready to ride the wave once we do reopen. But, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting time for the industry. Yeah, it's, it's not how things happen. And so the councils there think that the people that are buying bikes – over the pad- pandemic are going to continue to ride or a good percentage of them if they're wanting to build bigger car parks, et cetera. Yeah, look, I think they, we assume there'll be some attrition, like some people are going to drop off and mm. and not continue on with the sport. But I, I think a lot will. I mean, for us here in Tasmania, we've got a fairly small population. It's about 500,000. So most of the tourism businesses here, like us, are really built around inbound tourism. So I think most of the councils and the other similar bodies are very much looking towards the other side of coronavirus and thinking that our our offering down here should be, from a tourism perspective, stronger than ever. So I think as soon as we can settle into a bit of a solution around coronavirus, whatever that might be, the the floodgates will open and hopefully we'll have a lot of tourists coming back in. Yeah, you know, and it's it's one of those things. If even ten percent stay in the industry, you know, it has to be good, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and look, I think one of the things we've seen is there's a lot more beginner friendly trail popping up around the place, so it is a lot easier. I mean, I've got young kids now, and my wife's sort of getting into the sport, so you do notice when there's a lot more beginner friendly trail, you can actually take your family and beginner riders somewhere to ride now. You're not just trying to drop them into some sketchy <laughs> informal trail somewhere <laughs> like used to back in the day, which usually ended in tears. But yeah. I, I think in that sense, it, it's, a, it's a lot nicer place to be. And I hope that all these people that are new to the sport, they all seem to be loving it when you see them out and about. So I think they'll stick around. Yeah, it'd be good to see. It'd be good to see. You know, it's it's one of those things – it's just weird how stuff like that can affect different industries uh, in the way it does, you know, and the bike industry is obviously, you know, it's, there may be a glutton of secondhand bikes in the market pretty soon and the whole supply and demand thing's a wee bit upset, but I think it can only be good for the industry in, in the kind of medium to long term. Yeah, look, I, I think it, it will be. I mean, certainly, I don't know what it's like over where you are, but secondhand bikes here in Tasmania, even mainland Australia, are just getting snapped up so quickly. There's just so much demand because the bike shops can't actually sell new bikes. So the secondhand market has gone ballistic as well. I mean, we, we retail track bikes and we've got a pretty good shipment coming in. And I think we will we will just move those so quickly <laughs> because there's so much demand for them. Yeah, it's cool to see, man. It's cool to see. Um, all right, let's chat a little bit about the trails then um, and what people can expect and stuff when they come to Medina there. So thinking about building the trails, and it's cool that Dirt Arts, your business and stuff like that, because we can chat to you about that. Like, How long does that kind of process take when you see an area 
from that initial kind of perspective of the area to building trails and getting stuff up and running, how long does that whole process take? Oh, look, it's for us here at Medina, there was a lot of leasing negotiation and other complexity because it was the commercial side of it. Um, the development approvals themselves were probably the better part of a year, and that was a design and approvals process to get through that. What what we did is a pretty unique kind of overlay onto the site, which meant that we didn't have to design every single trail straight away. We basically got approval to develop trail through a number of different pretty broad corridors. And then we basically just put a number on that and said, look, we will we'll seek approval for 100 kilometres of trail. This might have been 120 to develop across the site within these certain areas. And that took a little bit of mucking around to get that through all the official channels. But once we did, that basically means that now we can have a bit of flexibility with the way we develop the site. So we, we sort of ended up, the, the development approvals took a lot longer than what we hoped. So we ended up with this sort of crazy short six-month time frame to build a whole bike park on a massive hill. So we were we were very much up against it, getting ready for our mm. our first opening. We'd promised everyone at least 35 kilometres of trail, which was probably a little bit ambitious in the end. But we we had about well, nearly 20 guys here for that whole six-month build, and everyone mm. was definitely <laughs> working around the clock to pull this thing together. But we, we got the 35 kilometres in. Um, since then, we built another, it's about 30 kilometres, 40, nearly 40, not long after that. And then we're, we're now in the process of building another 25 kilometres to get us up to the 100. It's a pretty tough site, so it's very steep for the most part. It's pretty heavily wooded. It's all virgin rainforest. And we definitely do take extra care up here because it's such a a sensitive natural environment so a lot of our guys will only build 25 meters of trail per team per day there's usually about three people in a team so in comparison some of our other sites they're a lot easier we'll be working towards more like 100 meters per team per day wow so it's 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 definitely a, a fairly tedious process up here and look we're building a different style of trail too so lots of big flow trails lots of really intricate rock work for our more technical trails. So we definitely spend a lot of time up here working on some of the tougher builds that we've done anyway, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you approach summer like that with the virgin rainforest and stuff, do you have to look at it from an environmental point of view as well, not to destroy that area and things like that? How do you go about that process? Yeah, look, it's the first thing we do. So, I mean, a lot of, a lot of my time these days is actually spent planning other mountain bike destinations and that's that's really the first step in the process for us before we do anything else so we, we use a lot of really advanced mapping software and technology so we we get a whole bunch of data basically and we analyze the data for the whole site of any of the key environmental values and animal habitats and creek lines and all manner of things so you basically end up with a bit of a, a constraints analysis you look at the site work out where you really shouldn't be or can't be proposing trail and sort of work backwards from there. And then you're trying to create that experience that you're trying to create within that particular trail network, whether it's cross-country trail riding, adventure descending trail, enduro trail, loops, downhills, what what have you. Yeah, it's a, it's a long process. And because I was going to ask you, you know, when you see a hill like that, 
how do you actually design it? Do you use some form of software? Do you actually go on the hill on foot and say, okay, we'll mark here, we'll mark here, we'll take a trail down through this? Like, how involved is all that kind of thing? Yeah, look, it's pretty involved, and we, we have a fairly structured process when we're doing it for, for most projects. Generally speaking, it's a, it's a site survey on foot, sort of getting a good feel for the for the land and then you do a lot of work in the office working through all the mapping software to figure out all the elevations and all those natural values and and other bits and pieces and then you'll actually have to physically go out and basically determine all the best routes for all the trails we're, we're certainly getting a lot better at all that preliminary work now so where we used to do it we'd have a pretty high error rate where you'd have to do a lot of work reworking all of your concepts out in the field now we basically have a, a next to zero error rate so all of the trails that we're proposing with that initial site survey and the desktop analysis we, we pretty much get right or very close to right there's not a lot of rework to do in the field other than sort of finding those natural features and rock outcrops and things that that you won't find until you're actually on the ground Medina was a little different because it's just such a bloody big hill <laughs> and <laughs> really really complex um, not mapped very well so all the contour data was pretty useless and lots of really deep dark gullies and and other tricky things to work around up here that were, were different to some other projects it's uh yeah it's pretty crazy like is it one of those jobs that you find yourself sitting behind the computer more than you think you would yeah, probably. I mean, it looks COVID. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I spend my time sitting on a plane most of the time, usually, but because I just fly so much. But look, at the moment, yeah, look, I'm probably spending, yeah, I would say maybe half the time in front of the computer, half the time working out in the field. I've actually got back in the machinery and, and on the tools doing a little bit of trail work myself, and I'm quite enjoying it, to be honest. It's been quite a few years since I've had the time to do that. So it's it's a bit of a different time at the moment. Whether I, I keep having that flexibility or not, I'm not too sure. But at the moment, it works. But yeah, look, it's it's a lot of desktop time, and we, we generally speaking, we've probably got six or seven major planning projects on the go at any one time, and they're they're fairly time consuming. Yeah, that's crazy, man, crazy. Um, when you're building the medina stuff there were you paying the lease even before the park was ready did you have to pay that from day one kind of thing yeah but look we we organized a, a pretty and this was one of the things that took such a long time we were probably better part of a year negotiating our lease for the state government so we did actually have a pretty favorable lead in to the lease so that gave us a few years, basically, to get the place up and operational before we had to contribute significant lease payments. So, look, we, we were paying a, a pretty reasonable lease cost as soon as we um, the soil, I mean, the, the spades hit the dirt, but nowhere near as much as we'll pay once we're, we're fully operational. Yeah, because it's a big undertaking if something's going to be taking months upon months upon months to get ready and you're paying lease and... You know, it's it's not easy. No, look, it's not. I mean, we we lease we lease the the government land. We have a flat lease cost, and then we actually pay per kilometre of trail, which is not uncommon here in Australia for councils to lease land off other people to do those kind of developments. So that gives us a little bit of flexibility. 
But look, our, our fixed costs, like anyone running something as as big in scale as this, they're, they're pretty high. I mean, we, we operate across about 2,500 acres, if not more, mm. and have three different leases and <laughs> numerous different properties now that we own and manage. So it's, it's not a simple process. No, you bear off good solicitors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do all right out of us, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, Simon, uh, more so when you're building trails for for other areas, how do you price something like that? Like, that cannot be easy. No, look, it's not. It's definitely not. And I think the... One of the big struggles for the for the industry here, and look, I would say it's probably similar anywhere, is there's so many different ways to, to build trail and a client will just ask for trail without really understanding what they're asking for. And look, for us, that could be a big, big, big flow trail built with massive machinery and it's basically a dirt jump park. And the, the build on that is just so incredibly slow versus just running your rake through the bush and a lot of clients they're getting better but a lot of clients won't understand the difference between the two so trying to price projects in a way that i guess is is transparent and so the client can understand it can be a challenge definitely and look it's always different i mean we price most of our projects on a a per meter basis and that's generally the the way things work in australia I, i think um, certainly North America, they seem to do a little bit more around working off hourly rates and things, which is mm. obviously less risk for us as a contractor, but a lot more risk for the client. So most of our government clients really want that fixed cost. They want to know exactly what the project is going to cost from start to finish. So we, we used to basically just work it out off how quickly we think we can build it and work backwards from there based on progress of each construction team. But we, we do a lot of different stuff. So we're probably our biggest project at the moment. It's actually a walking trail project. So we've put in, I think, tens of thousands of rock steps in this project. So that one was basically pricing each individual rock step. <laughs> so it's all it's always different. Wow, that's nuts. Yeah, because, you know, it, it, you could certainly go wrong quite easily and underprice something like that. You know, especially the way you were saying about Medina taking – basically three quarters longer to do because of the steepness and the terrain and stuff so i suppose it's something you have to you have to really know the terrain 100 percent before you can kind of give prices and things like that yeah look it's it's tricky and that another big part of my role is basically trying to develop or and or sign off on all the pricing that our that our teams develop for any of these kind of projects and it, it's really complicated. I mean, we, we develop trails on tropical islands and the top of ski resort mountains and all sorts of crazy places. And it, it's kind of tough. You, you really want to give your client a competitive price. You don't want to overcharge them. And you can't anyway, even if you wanted to, because otherwise you won't win the job. So it's it's definitely difficult trying to find that balance. Yeah, sounds it sounds like a bit of a minefield um, to get it right, just to, you know, to, to hit it on the head kind of thing. Um, but for sure, you've been doing it for quite a while, so you know what you're doing. Sounds like you know what you're doing anyway. <laughs> uh, we, we, we stuff it up sometimes, but <laughs> for, for the most part, we get it right. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. All right, so let's chat about Medina then. Um, so you've 62-plus individual trails there, uh, a big kilometre of network, 
Um, desca- describe the, the type of trails you have. You've done a little bit there, I suppose. But what can people expect kind of when they go to Medina? Yeah, look, our, our trail network's different to, to most other, the, the way most other networks are put together. So if you think of somewhere like Whistler, it's really all about descending. And then if you think of somewhere like, oh, I'm trying to think, just a general old trail centre. So for you guys, I'm trying to think, what do you have, like Cody Brennan or that kind of place in Wales, Seven Stains, like just trail riding, basically. So that's, traditionally that's sort of been the two ends of the spectrum in terms of the way we would develop a lot of trail networks for our clients. Maiden is very different in that we really tried to hybridise those those two trail networks. So what we did was we've got a whole bunch of descending trail from the top of the hill to the bottom, and then we have a number of arterial trails that run across the contour of the hill. So basically what you can do is you can descend until you hit one of these contouring trails and then you can meander your way across the hill for as long as you want to, um, pick another trail, keep descending, and then repeat the process as you get further down the hill. So it's it's more of an enduro style of riding where there's some some hardcore descending if you want hardcore descending or else you can climb and contour and sort of choose your own adventure i guess um, one of the things for us was to have a, a really broad diversity of trails so i think we're, we're at about 70 individual trails at the moment wow. and they range from really 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 cruisy beginner flow trail all the way up to about the most steep and technical trail you could possibly imagine riding and then we've got a lot of jump trail and, and intermediate flow trail. It's intermediate technical trail. It's probably some of the, the most favourite or the most popular trails on our hill. But I'd say one of the key things that people love about our trail network is you can start at the top of the hill. For most riders, it's about half an hour trip to get down. I think the quickest anyone has ever got down is about 12 minutes. It's a, oh, it's a long, long way down. <laughs> but on the way down the hill, you can pick... Uh, basically infinite number of trail combinations so you can just switch from riding technical trail to jump trail to flow trail to technical trail back to something different and then there's a few sort of longer meandering sort of wilderness adventure rides in amongst that as well so uh, that's what I really like about it I mean I've ridden lots and lots of places I've ridden all throughout Europe North America Asia <clears throat> most of the, the key bike parks all around the world and I think that is really our, our biggest point of difference is having that more enduro-focused network and having that just massive diversity of trail that can capture so many different individual trails in one run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, sounds it sounds amazing. Um, and is it suited to all levels? So if you were a beginner or, or you know, you haven't been riding for a number of years, could you still go there and find nice stuff to, to build your skills skill level on? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, we we definitely have been, let's call it darker green, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to try and put a label on it. So not not the greenest of green, beginner-friendly trail uh, up until recently. But now that we've purchased this land, we're, we're really, really stepping it back to go with some very, very basic, almost like a, a footpath, a gravel path. So if you can ride a bike, you'll be able to use our uplift service here now. So that's that's a big change for us. We've sort of always been a little bit tentative in saying rolling out the welcome mat to the beginners because perhaps we look we had a beginner product, but it certainly wasn't the easiest. But no, this this coming summer we've definitely got that nailed. And then the other big thing has just been the the development of our skills park, which we're we're calling the playground. Just a, a really big skills development network with graded 
drop-offs and all sorts of different features, the airbag jumps, a big dirt jump park, and a, a new dirt pump track. We've already got an asphalt pump track. We're just adding a second one in that's a, a little different. So it's it's pretty diverse offering, really, for trail. And this coming summer, we'll get pretty close to having 100 kilometres of trail on the hill. So it's definitely not a small network either. Yeah, wow. It sounds, sounds pretty impressive. So there's something for everybody there. You can go work on your skills. You can go work on your bigger jumps onto the airbag, which seem really popular, right? That that kind of thing seems really, really popular at the minute. Yeah, yeah. And it looked for us, it was that no one, I think there's one other place with a mountain bike airbag in Australia, nothing in Tasmania. So we're always looking for things that we can do to improve the experience for our, our customers give them something a little bit different. Um, the other thing is there's not really any good public dirt jumps, any big public dirt jumps in the state. So that was the other thing for us. We really want to create somewhere that is very all-inclusive. If you're into BMX, if you just want to come out with your family, if you want to muck around on the airbag, if you want to take your kids for a little push around on their little run bikes, the strider bikes, you can do that. So we're really just trying to broaden that, broaden that offering this coming summer, which we're pretty excited about. Yeah, I think it's a good idea because, um, you know, a lot of the hardcore guys complain when there's new trail, I know for here anyway, when there's new trail networks built and there may be greens and blues. But to be honest, for something to be viable, commercially viable and be successful, I think you need to attract that audience. You know, families that spend the day, that go to the cafe, that spend a bit of money. Do you find that there as well? Yeah, look, for sure. I mean, to start with, we were really just aiming for that enthusiast market. So most of our customers come for three to five days. They, they wow. have a pretty good length of stay here. And they'll often they'll often have dinners with us. They have most of their lunches with us. Like, it's, it's a pretty good little business model for us, really. But what we were finding is, there's a lot of just general tourists coming through the region here. There's lots of really nice waterfalls and bushwalks, and it's a pretty popular little tourist spot anyway. And we were just finding, look, we're losing out on a lot of customers by not having anything that, that they could do. And the other big thing for me is I've got young kids. They both love mountain bike riding, and I've found that there's really few places that I can take them mountain bike riding to really work on their skills and, and let them ride somewhere safe that they can actually enjoy. So for me personally, it's really important to to provide something for that next generation so we can really grow the sport. And that's that's where we really want to move toward is somewhere where you can bring your kids and really develop their riding. Yeah, it's a good idea for sure. And then you can hold kids coaching sessions. You can do all that kind of stuff, you know. It, it really branches out into a lot of other areas. Yeah, look, absolutely. We've, we've got – we put on our first – um, proper kids camp i think it's sold out in about two days so we're, wow. we're now just working out what else we can do for that kids offering so we've got a, quite a few more kids clinics and things to add into our bike school but look it's it's definitely growing in popularity and as i say there's not that many places where you can take your kids or anywhere really but not here in tasmania so for us it's it's a really good opportunity and something we're really passionate about doing yeah cool now as far as facilities and stuff go there you've got a lot happening as well you know you've got sightseeing tours you've got bike hire you've got the cafes 
bar skills coaching group skills you've got a lot going on there man you have a lot of balls juggling there at one time um tell us a little bit about your facilities as far as the cafe and, and things like that go and you've got the summit cafe and bar as well which sounds pretty amazing yeah so look we we inherited that building with the the lease that we took over so there's a whole backstory behind that but Basically, the government spent better part of $5 million putting this building on top of the hill and then realised that they couldn't actually do anything with it. So we, <laughs> we took that on as, as part of our lease. And it's a stunning building, but it's, it's bloody hard to do anything with it commercially. I mean, we, we've got a few ideas for, for bushwalking tours and other things. And we, we certainly do a few really good high-end dining events. So we run... A number of events with local brewers and wineries and we've done some gin events we're looking at doing a whiskey event this coming winter or tail end of this winter so that that's sort of been interesting for us i mean i've always been into eating and drinking and the whole kind of <laughs> hospitality industry i've got absolutely no experience in it whatsoever but we've we started out look we have a, a pretty good little offering in the bike park doing pizzas burgers toasties all manner of things like good good riding food basically but this this coming summer or across this winter we've been working on a new restaurant which is more sort of slightly higher end down in our base building so that's that's sort of on track to open probably the later part of this summer so then we'll have two restaurants at the bottom of the bike park catering for two sort of different price brackets and two different Mm -hmm. audiences and then we have the Summit Restaurant. We've got, the, like you say, the bike, school, bike skills. So bike school skills coaching has been pretty big for us over the last couple of years and certainly growing. Our rental fleet's always been strong. I think we've got 40, nearly 50 bikes wow, in that my. coming rental fleet. We've, we've added a whole bunch of bikes for kids. So there's a lot more kind of family-friendly cheaper and smaller bikes in the fleet for this coming year and then just our general enduro and downhill bike fleet so the other i think the other big project for us coming up will be we've got another property in town that we're looking at developing some camping and accommodation on so we're just going through the approvals process for that because what we're finding is a lot of people want to come out here and camp and enjoy the the natural environment not necessarily stay in accommodation and then the other part of it is we we just have a shortage of accommodation anyway over that peak summer season so all being well we'll have a a nice river frontage campground online at some point this coming summer yeah wow you've got a lot going on there man um for sure and the summit cafe looks amazing it's like 1100 meters above sea level and stuff so you get awesome 360 views out around the whole the whole area Oh, it's epic. It's really epic up there. And we looked at the, probably the, the most popular thing we've done up there is every Saturday during the summer, and it'll be the same this summer, we run a, a sunset barbecue event. So Saturday is our busiest day. So those events often sell out and you can just sit up there. And like you say, you've got a view 360 degrees out over the wilderness and you can just watch the sunset and have a beer and a, a good bit of food to eat. So that's they've always been very popular and that's probably the – the best utilization we've got out of that venue so far um a few other ideas but it's a tricky space to work with Mm. and would that attract mountain bikers or would that just be somebody else just anybody looking for a different kind of experience 
Oh, look, those, those barbecues have always been overwhelmingly mountain bike riders. So if we've got a few hundred people in the bike park, a couple hundred people in the bike park on a Saturday, a, a good portion of them will often come up to the barbecue. So the, the dining events we run, the winery and the brewery events, they're often not mountain bike riders. So we advertise those a little bit more widely and they're definitely priced and, and built around a more sort of foodie audience so they're mm-hmm. more of a degustation meal where we're matching the the beer and the wine to multi-course food so they're they're definitely a different kind of product again yeah i think that's pretty cool though that you can mix the different kind of people you know for the bike park to really work and be successful and it's really good that you can do something like that and you can mix different kind of people and clientele and make the whole thing work together i think that's really cool yeah look that that was always our aim so we actually registered the business as maydina adventure park so the the idea is very much to to build it out as more of a broad adventure experience we are just working under the the maydina bike park banner at the moment because we don't really have enough (laughs) other things to do to call ourselves an adventure park but there's certainly a lot more planned i mean we've we've got all manner of things that we're working on for sort of a a slightly more diverse audience but i guess not dissimilar to what you'd see in the the ski resorts over summer or the skyline businesses in new zealand with luges and zip lines and all those kind of things so that's where we work, where we're moving towards. We don't just want to be a mountain bike park. We want to be a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, makes sense. Definitely makes sense. It means if the mountain bike thing takes a slight downturn, you know, highs and lows and all this kind of thing, then you're, you've still got a good solid business there. Yeah, look, absolutely. That's that's part of it. I mean, it's it's just about getting more people through the door as well at the end of the day. I mean, everyone that comes and visits us spends quite a bit of time with us and does lots of different things. So the more people we get through the door, the better. And then I guess the other part of it is we are such a small population base, really. So the more broad, the more broader, the more broad our offering is, the, the better we will be long term. And look, ultimately, it just means we can spend more money on trails and have more fun mountain biking. So it's, it's not a bad yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, now let's chat a little bit about um, events because you have a you have a downhill national championship there in 2021 in January. Um, is that the first time you've run that? Yeah. So first up, it's March now. So we had to oh, move. Oh, March, it, really? Okay. Due to the yeah, with the, the state government here closing the borders for even longer than we anticipated, we, we pushed the event back to March. But look, we've we've had an enduro national championships before, and that was really, 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 really well received. So that was in late November last year. And we certainly want to host another one of those again at some point in the future. And we've been working on the opportunity to host downhill and cross country with the national body for, for quite a while now, probably over six months um coronavirus hit we were we were due to announce the event a long time ago so we kind of sat on it and tried to figure out what we wanted to do but look we've we've got two years of that event and then we're we're hoping anyway to very much work towards trying to get ourselves on uh, an international event roster whether it's a world cup or or something similar that's that's very much where we'd like to be in let's say five years time mm-hmm Mm-hmm. yeah and that cross-country downhill national championships that's over nine days that's like a nine-day event 
It's pretty big, yeah. Look, we've yeah. I, I guess part of what the national body were keen to do was give it to people, give it to an organising group that was commercial and quite keen to to really throw a lot behind the event. So for the last few years, it's been hosted by clubs, and they've done a really fantastic job. But they're a little bit limited in what they can do with their venue and things. So I think for us, we really want to look at turning it into quite a big festival. Like we'll have bars up on the hill and all sorts of fun things. Lots and lots of social events, lots of nighttime events, bands, DJs, lots of riding, lots of racing and lots of industry stuff. So we're, we're very much looking at it as part of a big sort of 10-day long mountain bike festival with, with our own enduro event and a few other things thrown in the mix. So that'll be a, a pretty big event on our calendar come next year. Yeah, wow. Like, how do you go about staffing something like that, Simon? I'm sure you don't keep that amount of staff you'll need on for that all year. Do you just outsource staff for that that kind of time period or that event? Yeah, we will. I mean, I've, I actually used to event manage for the national body, so I, I ran a couple of national series for them. So I've got a little bit of inside <laughs> inside scoop on that one yeah but look it's it's very it's very much about bringing in additional staff i mean we're quite lucky here in that we do have quite a big pool of staff so we have about eight or so full eight or nine full-time staff that work with us year round but on top of that we have at least 20 or 30 that work for us regularly that have Mm -hmm. really good experience across our whole operation so we will look to bring a lot of those in for that event and then we'll have a lot of volunteer course marshals. We'll bring in some some outside event professionals. I mean, I think hopefully we should, notwithstanding any COVID dramas, we should see about six or 700 plus, maybe up to 900 competitors across that event. So it's not massive, but it is a pretty big event. And there'll obviously be lots of spectators as well and lots and lots of different racing formats. So we'll be busy. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, wow that that will be that'll be crazy. Um, and can people register via the website for that? And costs of entry and stuff are on there. Uh, not yet. So we're still finalising the the entry portal. We expect to have that up in the next couple of weeks. So if people are keen to enter, probably the best bet is just to keep an eye on our social media for the bike park, and we'll certainly give people plenty of notice um and yeah you got lots of time to enter but i know a lot of people are keen to get their event entry in so it won't be long yeah cool um the website's very good actually you've got lots of good stuff on there you've got your costings for your uplifts and stuff and there's a number of different passes and different ways you can go about that and that's really cool and you've got kind of all your your bike school stuff and all on there is do you see the bike school getting more popular yeah, look, it has, and I think what we're really hoping to say, expecting to see, is that there'll be a pretty big rise this, particularly this year, I think, where we've got all these people that are quite new to the sport. I mean, we, we actually brought in the guy that runs the Bike Park Forest race. He was one of PMBI, who you might have heard of, the, the International Mountain Bike Instructors Association. He was one of their top people. Wow. So we brought him in with the view that we would very much drive that bike school offering pretty hard so we we see it as a big opportunity and i think the next year or so will be a particularly big opportunity but for us i suppose we were lacking in a little bit of that beginner friendly trail product so now we've got that coming yeah we we certainly plan on trying to make the most of it 
with those programs. And I mean, if you use skiing or snowboarding as an example, really not many people would learn to, to ski or snowboard without going through a, a course or some kind of session. And we think mountain biking should really be the same for, for a lot of people. If they're new to the sport, they can gain so much by going getting some proper skills instruction, making sure they've got all those fundamental skills down pat before they head out and try and have to figure, figure it out for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I know there's, you know, if you ask a pro if I've got 200 bucks or whatever to spend on mountain biking, what should I buy? And all of them, 90% of them will say a lesson. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Because I, I think there's just so many things. I mean, I, I still get help and I've been riding for 25 years and I'm certainly not the best rider these days, but I've been pretty competitive back in the day. And we're, we're all learning all of the time. And I think particularly if you're new to the sport, it's priceless, like you say, to, to get a little bit of help. So, look, we're, we're certainly hoping and working to grow that side of it, as I think most of the bike parks are. It's a, it's a really good offering to have for a whole lot of reasons. It, it, look, it's great for risk management too in terms of really curating people's experience, making sure they're, they're not launching down trails that they're, yeah. they're definitely not capable of going down and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's different, I think, from the skiing thing because – a lot of people that go skiing for the first time, you know, they've never obviously been on skis. Some of them have never even been on snow. But uh, most people have ride a bike at some stage in their life, and they think it's just as easy as getting back on. You know, if they can ride it around their local their local uh, park or whatever, they think they can jump and go to one of these resorts. But they soon they soon realise there's a wee bit more to it than that, right? Yeah, look, I think what a lot of people found. I mean, for us here. We had, I wouldn't say a high injury rate, but we had quite a few injuries when we first opened. And I think a lot of that was just to do with people not really understanding that our trails gave them the opportunity to ride things that were probably a lot more challenging than most mm. of them had ridden before. And uh, I think most people, particularly guys, seem to overestimate their ability a little bit on their mountain bike or on anything, probably. <laughs> so we, we've certainly seen that kind of calm down over the last little while, and, and we've added in a lot more trail. So there's a really nice steady progression now through the trail network. But you definitely do see people that come down and their first run, they try and hit all the big jumps, and you just cringe because <laughs> you can see that it's so far beyond their ability. But they're with a group of guys, and they, they just feel like they have to do it. Unfortunately, we don't see too much of that these days. Yeah, good, good, good stuff. Now, uh, before I let you go there, uh, I just want to ask you one more thing um, because you're in the perfect position to answer this. How have you seen bike parks change over the years? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, I it, it's funny, right? I, I think that bike parks haven't necessarily changed that much as bike technology has changed. I mean, I think... Like say, I use Bike Park Wales as an example because I'm a big fan of what they do. I think they've they've very much pitched their trail at an enduro-focused audience, which is similar to what we did. I mean, we um, we copied a lot of things that they did. <laughs> they do a great job. Mm-hmm. So I think that, and I think bike parks will probably move a little bit more in that direction. I mean, here in Tasmania, that the public bike parks certainly have quite a few enduro focused uplift trail so not not sort of that big divide between downhill and cross country so i think there'll be a little bit more of that i mean whether we see the the big players like whistler 
add a little bit more enduro-style trail. I mean, they, they certainly added a few trails in that kind of direction, but it is still very much gravity-focused. I think that the trail quality's definitely got better. I mean, I've been going to Whistler for, I think, over 20 years now, and even just looking uh, as one of the biggest bike park, looking at their progression in trail quality, the trails are built a lot better. They're holding up a lot better. They ride a lot better. They flow a lot better, and the jumps are a lot safer. So I think... The, the industry is definitely getting better. Uh, I think our risk management and our operational side of things across the industry is, is getting better as well. So I, I know for us that was a huge body of work in trying to figure out how we can build that customer experience so that they get taken on a, a bit of a journey before they even get here and get a really good understanding of what they're, they're getting themselves into. So mm-hmm. it's very much a moving feast. I mean, the other big side of it is you're seeing some of these other um, quite large countries that are just sort of getting into mountain bike riding. I mean, we did quite a bit of work in China for a couple of years, oh. sort of gone a bit quiet now, um, a bit hard to get over there. But I think once countries like that, um, China, Taiwan, a lot of those Asian countries really start to move more in the outdoor sports direction, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with mountain biking over there. We've certainly looked at some pretty interesting projects over in China, so it's it's very much an interesting time for the industry. Um, I, I think from our perspective, one of the, the nice things is that some of the big bike manufacturers are, are really getting on board with the trail side of things. So I know our partner Trek are getting really, really active. They're, they're big supporters of what we do and big supporters of trail networks across the board, both public and private. So I think that's really nice to see. So you've sort of got this, call it full cost accounting, call it what you will, but these these companies that benefit from um, mountain bike trails actually starting to give back to some of these mountain bike trails, and I think that's just going to feed more growth in the sport. So that's a really nice thing to see. Yeah, it just seems to be one of those ever changing things, you know, where certain different, you know, and the COVID thing might be a good example because we're, we're maybe going to see a different clientele come into the bike parks now, um, you know, so. It, it will never stop changing, I don't think, and you have to kind of adapt. And you guys obviously are doing doing it right there, um, you know. So it's you're always looking to the future, kind of thing with it, right? Yeah, look, you you can't fall asleep at the wheel. I mean, for for us, we've we've still got a really long development pathway. We're unfortunately, I'm not going to rest <laughs> anytime. <laughs> no. But look, it's 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 one of those things. I think we we feel like once we get this beginner stuff nailed. We're, we've definitely future-proofed ourselves for, for a little while, and I think we've moved in the right way to, to kind of counter all of the coronavirus dramas that we've had. But, yeah, look, it's, it's never-ending. I mean, what's I, I suppose e-bikes is the other big thing. So we were certainly um, pretty mindful of, of what we were doing here and making sure that it was going to work for e-bikes. So there's, there's certainly been a lot of banter uh, around our circles anyway that e-bikes will kill the the gravity bike park i really don't think so i mean even if technology does get pretty good it's just a different feast i mean i I have an e-bike i ride it quite a bit i also have uh, several other bikes that i ride quite a bit and i enjoy them all for for different reasons but what we did here is we we built that enduro style trail network that really works well for or works really well for e-bikes anyway you can do lots of short climbs lots of long descents and we just charge an access fee similar to, to any of the other bike parks. I think 
most of the parks in the UK charge an e-bike fee. Uh, I'll charge a fee, and then I think some of them have an e-bike levy on top of that. For us, we just charge a, a flat rate for anyone that wants to come and access the the trail network and the other facilities if they're on an e-bike that's great if they're not on an e-bike no difference but i I think e-bikes are changing what we do more generally in the trail development space we're certainly able to build longer more backcountry sort of riding experiences that cater for a broader market of people now that they can actually get on an e-bike and and get through that ride where they may not have been physically able to before yeah yeah, and hopefully, again, it brings a different clientele or more clientele into the industry. Um, it can only be a good thing, I think, to be honest. It's just different. I mean, I, I ride my e-bike not to make my life easy. I'm trying to get fit semi-successfully, not 100% successfully. <laughs> but I, when I ride my e-bike, I'm, I'm just using it to have fun up the climb. So I'm not sitting back relaxing. I'm, I'm just giving it everything and and enjoying the technical nature of climbing so while the bike park's closed here or when it's open i've been doing it early in the mornings but i just ride up all our downhill trails <laughs> i shouldn't say that on here i've everyone trying to do it at the bike park but <laughs> it, it's been kind of fun <laughs> yeah yeah well i think a big misconception with the e-bike stuff is that it's super super easy but you can make it as difficult as you want you know yeah, absolutely. And if you really want, you just turn the power down a lot, which I'll often do. If I'm on my e-bike and I'm riding with people that aren't on e-bikes, you turn it right down to the lowest setting. And it's pretty similar to just pedaling a normal bike, but overcoming the extra weight of the e-bike. So look, I'm, we're certainly not scared of e-bikes at all. I mean, for us, to be honest, financially, we probably do better out of e-bikes sometimes than we do the uplift anyway. So it's certainly not a financial fear. But I, I think they're they're a good thing. They're, they're bringing more people into the sport. I mean, I've I've got my father-in-law and mother-in-law on e-bikes now. I, I probably wouldn't have got them yeah. on a normal um, normal mountain bike. So that's just bringing more people into the sport. So it's only a good thing, I reckon. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about it for sure. Um, so before I let you go there, Simon, what's your favourite thing about running a mountain bike at Adventure Park? Like, are you still enjoying it? You've been on it for quite a while. Yeah, look, I, I honestly, the, the best thing for me is just seeing people out here enjoy themselves. So that at the end of the day, um, after we're sitting in the, in our in our patio there where everyone's eating a pizza and drinking a beer and just seeing all the, the happy faces, I think makes all of the, the background struggles very much worthwhile. Yeah, that seems to be the consensus, uh, uh, you know, among most of the guys that run bike parks and stuff. It's just the enjoyment that other people get from it and it's it's so cool man it's just such a nice place to go and switch off and just forget about the world for a while yeah look definitely and then i guess the other thing probably selfishly that while coronavirus has been going on i've got a house here that backs onto the bike park and my backyard's had 80 kilometers of trail in it and a a whole bunch of wilderness (laughs) for quite a while so it certainly played in my favour over the last little while, that's for sure. Amazing, amazing. Um, now, you've got plenty going on there. I'll not ask you what you've got planned for the near future because you've got lots and lots going on. Um, but you're hoping to be up and running from end of September, you said, yeah? Yeah, September 26th, we will definitely be open. Um, local audience, the borders will still be shut, but Tasmanians are very much welcome to come and join us. And Hopefully, all being well, our borders open December 1, as they're planned to, and then we'll be ready to accept anyone 
<laughs> again, oh, ready for cool. a big summer. It's a great, uh, it's a great place for us boys over here, this side of the pond, to uh, to go for a nice winter getaway. You know, to your to your summer. Sounds amazing. Yeah, look, yeah, you should for sure. I was actually going to head back over your way. We were going to do Italy and and go and see the Bike Park Wales boys again and and hang out in the UK with a few friends. But obviously, coronavirus um, definitely shot that one to pieces. So I think we'll be back next year and have a good look around. Yeah, cool. So how can people best get in contact with you, Simon, there? How are they best to find out what's happening with the park and stuff? Uh, look, with the bike park, um, social media, we're pretty active. The website's got all the info you need on the socials. It's just Made in a Bike Park um, on Facebook and Instagram are really the two channels we use. Um, people can find me on there. Um, otherwise, my personal Instagram, if you want to get me more directly, I'm just simonfrench.mtb on Instagram, and that's probably my main social channel that I use these days. But you you can get hold of me via the, the bike park website or our trail building website. It's just dirtart.com.au. Cool, man. Sounds amazing. Uh, well, listen, thanks so much for coming on. It's been it's been really good chatting to you and getting an insight into the trail building side of things and the park. It's really good to get it from your perspective because you kinda, you're kind of you very good at both. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a blast chatting to you. No, thank you. It's been great to chat. Well, hopefully everything goes well and you get opened up in time and the border's open for you and the, the season gets kicked off well. You, you deserve one. You've had a bit of bad luck there recently, so you deserve a good open season. Yeah, look, we thought the last year would be our year, but coronavirus didn't. So, look, next next summer we're, we're ready for it. We're ready Excellent. for a clean run all the way through. Excellent, bro. Excellent. Well, good luck and I'll keep an eye on what's going on with you there. Um and uh, for sure, I'll have to go over there and visit Jasper, at least at some stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come over for a ride. Always welcome. Cool, bud. Thanks so much. Have a good day. No worries. Thank you. See ya. That's a wrap for episode 155. I hope you enjoyed that, folks, and uh, you've certainly put that on your bucket list. Medina looks amazing. What Simon and the crew there at Dirt Art are doing looks amazing. It's all very very interesting stuff and Tasmania just looks you know the only problem with Tasmania is you would go there and you wouldn't want to come home that's the only issue with it it just looks awesome and the guys there and all are awesome I've been speaking to a few of them before in the podcast so when you get some time go and check it out and have a look and be prepared to change your travel plans for next year (laughs) Simon thanks so much for coming on the show man I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast and having a chat because I know your time is quite valuable there you're a very very busy man so thanks so much for coming on the show i do appreciate it and i hope everything goes well for you over your coming summer season now folks if you want to know more about simon about dirt art about medina bike park just go to the show notes mtb-tribe.com and you will find all simon's info there with quick and easy links to his socials his web pages and a few videos there from their youtube channel Now, if you're enjoying the show and you want to support the show, the best way is by subscribing, rating and reviewing us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts because every one of your ratings helps boost us on Apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, don't worry, you can find and subscribe via whatever podcast platform you prefer to use. We also have a website, mtb-tribe.com, where you can find the complete back catalogue Listen and download every show free from there. 
You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the show. Now you can also get in touch and follow us on social media at MTB Tribe on Instagram and Facebook. And please share with friends, get the word out. Let's try and get more people off their sofas, get them on the bikes, on the trails, and hopefully get them out in nature and enjoying themselves a little bit more. Now, if you want to get in contact with the show, you can PM me on the social media channels or you can email me info at mtb-tribe.com and I will get back to you because I do read all emails and I do read all the PM social posts. So once again, thanks for being here this week. Thanks for your continued support and thanks for tuning into the show. And until next week, as always, get the bikes out, hit the trails and stay MTB stoked.